1: It's Monday, April 16th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis.
2: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
1: You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app.
2: Did you see Ready Player One?
1: The day it opened.
2: Oh, nice. I saw it the day after it opened. What did you think?
1: I mean, I thought it was a really enjoyable movie. I saw it at the Alamo Drafthouse, which is always a great experience. Uh, and it was a lot of fun, but it, it was not the book.
2: <laughs> it's definitely not the book. So you have some feelings about it, I'm guessing.
1: Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, look, the reason I love the book so much was because of all the 80s references. And those were essentially, you know, gone, except or they were too subtle for they're, me to pick up. I mean, they're muted. Let's they're so. muted. And they're, yeah, there's lots of Easter eggs, you know, in the movie and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's just it went by too quickly for me to capture most of it. But I still enjoyed the movie.
2: But what do you think about a world where... One of the primary ways we interact with it is through a virtual space.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is what I loved about the book, it, you know, more more than uh, just the 80s references. Uh, it was this idea that, you know, we, we are going to come upon a time when the world that we can create with technology is going to potentially be better than the world that we live in in the physical reality. And what happens then?
2: Oh, see, this is interesting. Is it better? That that's basically the question we embraced this week, because Ready Player One painted a picture of a world where virtual reality was everywhere. You can put on a helmet and pretty much experience anything. You could fly amongst the birds, travel new planets, you'd be a superhero. But also that comes with the negative, the ugliness of greed that emerged in that space, bullying, immoral behavior because this isn't quote unquote real. Or is it? And that's really the science question we tackle this week. These experiences certainly aren't real by any definition, but I've personally been in plenty that feel that way. I have an Oculus Rift at home. I tried out the Apollo 11 experience where they used real audio and put you in a virtual rocket launch to the moon, and it was absolutely stunning. I've been so immersed into a game where I've run into a wall and hurt myself, but I've also had that social experience where somebody really got in my personal space in a way that lingered and creeped me out for a couple of days. Uh, many listeners probably know that I work at and which has covered the rise of consumer VR pretty much as much as any other site on the internet. Uh, and a couple of years back, I got really curious about the science underpinning some of this. Not the science around the hardware, but the science around the impact on us, the social science. And I visited a lab at Stanford called the Virtual Human Interaction Lab, which was run by Jeremy Bailenson, who's this week's guest. They really studied the effect of how vr can impact training and immersion or presence but most of all empathy how it makes you feel uh, when you both embody somebody else's shoes or have an experience that has you relate to somebody in a very different way and what they said was that vr offers the ability to literally be in somebody else's shoes In a way that you can't recreate in real life. And that immersion, whether it be being a homeless person and living out a day in their shoes or diving to the corals that are being bleached by climate change, those have lingering effects on all of us. And they study how that experience, how that immersion really changes our approach, particularly along those lines of empathy. Jeremy has continued that work and has a new book out called Experience on Demand. It's a primer on the science uh, that we know so far on VR, the potential therapeutic applications and the dangers. And we dive headlong into those areas from discussing the hardware to training NFL quarterbacks to the social downsides.
1: So let's take a short break and we'll be back with Kishore's interview with Jeremy Balenson.
2: This episode was brought to you by Smart News. Tired of seeing ads when you want news? Sick of having social media filter your news? Feel like you're missing out on breaking news? Download Smart News for free in the app or Google Play Store and get your news in real time from over 300 trusted sources, including CNN, Vice, TechCrunch, National Geographic, Political, and more. Smart News' algorithm automatically curates the must-read stories that matter now, so you can get your news in one minute. Plus, you can read the news wherever you go, even when you're offline. Join over 25 million users worldwide and try smart news ever since social media sites started filtering what you see i can't get real-time news in the way i used to that's why smart news is perfect for someone like me i get breaking news right as it happens get your news in one minute with smart news available for free on the apple app store or google play store Jeremy Bailenson, welcome to Inquiring Minds.
3: Thanks for having me, Kishore. It's it's delightful to be here.
2: Virtual reality is one of my favorite topics. I am one of those early adopters that has been in on the technology for a long time. Uh, And I've had the chance to visit your lab at Stanford and walk through some of the different scenarios you've developed. I'm curious how you got started with VR because you've been in this world for nearly a couple decades now.
3: So my my journey to land as a VR guy is a fairly circuitous one. So the the first VR demo I ever did was in 1994, uh, while I was wandering around the Embarcadero here in San Francisco. While I was interviewing f- to be a graduate student at Berkeley, I, I stumbled upon an arcade that had a game called Dactyl Nightmare, and that was back in 1994. And you know, even though it was uh, very low in fidelity compared to today's standards, it really blew my mind. This idea that you can so drastically transport your mental, uh, your, your consciousness to to a different place. And you know, fast forward another five years, I get my PhD at Northwestern University uh, in 1999, where I'm modeling how the brain can do reasoning and form categories from a classic cognitive psych standpoint. And I just was kind of at an impasse where I wasn't loving what I was doing. I enjoyed doing research and studying the mind, but the traditional cognitive science route was not resonating. And at the time, I I was rereading this novel. That I'm sure a lot of our list- listeners have read called Neuromancer, and Neuromancer just kind of it struck me in a way it hadn't before. Really, you know, seeing the vision for what VR is going to be someday and, and and what's possible and how it changes the human identity and social interaction uh, uh, d- made me want to switch fields. So I ended up taking a postdoc at UC Santa Barbara in 1999, where I was trained how to build vr from a hardware standpoint how to do the programming to make content uh, but most importantly how to ask bigger more social questions things about communication and training and learning and understanding others
2: yeah i'm surprised to hear you refer to yourself as a as a vr guy partially because my read of your of your book is even though you're heavily invested in the technology you're you're bullish on its future your the way that you interact with vr is different than uh, the gaming industry or the consumer industry has. You see it as a as an arena to engage with in intense circumstances, not one to reside in.
3: Exactly, so when I say I'm a VR guy, I'm still stuck in 1999 where the 30 of us that were doing this, uh, you know, running experiments on people in VR, video games were the furthest thing from our mind. I mean, the idea that you'd use VR, this medium where if you think about when I first started doing the work, it required a massive room with dedicated hardware to run. It cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. In fact, the first NSF grant uh, we had funded at UCSB, we had budgeted for uh, Silicon Graphics workstations that cost six figures each. And you needed to have at least one, sometimes two dedicated technicians to run it. So when I say I'm a VR guy, we were operating under the assumption that VR was a special thing that you went to a special place to do that was reserved for really rare experiences. It wasn't for the mundane uh, entertainment aspect. It was for, you know, making a trip to do something special.
2: VR economics has been driven by games and by big companies. We've seen incredible iterations in the hardware over the last couple of years. I'm very curious your stance on, are we at a point where VR... In terms of its its hardware is mature enough to really start pursuing some of the things that you study at your lab, which is the impacts, the cognitive, the psychological impacts of VR, or do we still have a ways to
3: go? I, I mean, I do owe a huge thank you to the gaming community. I mean, when you look at what Facebook did, when Zuckerberg buys Oculus, all of a sudden, for the first time in history, a vr company has not four or five engineers or not even a dozen when you go back in history to some of the biggest companies in the vr space over the past few decades you've literally got hundreds of engineers working on this really hard problem and because of this intense motivation coming from oculus early on all these really tough challenges get solved and you know I, actually it's funny just yesterday i pulled out of my closet the uh, the oculus rift dk2 and I dusted it off, plugged it into a laptop, and it was still working. And it's amazing to think that this, 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 this hardware that's been sitting around for a couple of years actually just plugs in and plays. It's it's you know, so what it's allowed us to do as scientists, we can now collect larger samples. We can say, I want to find out if VR causes empathy, but instead of having two dozen subjects drive to Stanford Park and walk out to my lab, we can literally install these in museums and in people's homes and and collect data from thousands of people to start to get a real answer uh, with with what we call representative samples. So it's really changed the way we think about research by having these displays that they actually work and they work well. They're, they're very robust.
2: To hear the consumer community talking about it, they're making these iterations and, and resolutions and field of view. Do you see that as important to push the science forward or or are we at a stable enough point at this point to to really garner these studies at scale and still have an
3: understanding emerge? The technology is moving. Uh, probably, I don't know what it means to say three magnitudes of orders, but you know, magnitudes of orders faster than the social science. So, in terms of understanding how an experience affects the brain, you know, the the standard that's that was even in the DK one for Oculus or in early versions of the HDC Vive or Samsung products, I mean, even these early standards were better than the quality of the head mounted displays. If you look at the, let's pretend there's ten thousand publications in the history of virtual reality, you know, only a couple hundred are using these very new head mounted displays that are so amazing in terms of field of view and update rate and, and all of these, uh, you know, latency, etc all these constructs. So the tech is moving really fast. Even a three-year-old outdated HMD is new when it comes to the state of the art of what we know scientifically. I've heard you say you can
2: do impossible things in VR, but I, I also heard you say that doesn't mean you should do impossible things in VR, that it comes with a level of of responsibility and restraint can you talk about how people are engaging in vr and and what you think is the interesting way to engage with vr
3: yeah so the it's an important point and i appreciate you bringing it up and and the the kind of tagline that i'm evolving on so the cool thing about writing a book is you know people pick on you a little bit and they read it and you get critiqued and and my thinking's evolving a little bit but this line still does come from the book although I, it, it has changed slightly VR is great for things that you can't do in the real world. So fly to the moon, become someone else, you know, go to the bottom of the ocean, travel in time, do the impossible. What VR is not great for, in my opinion, uh, is things that you are not comfortable with yourself having done them. So if there's some experience that in the real world, you wouldn't be able to look yourself in the mirror that night, you wouldn't be able to look at your kids and smile. It's something that you would feel so bad about yourself. For doing in the physical world if that's the case you probably shouldn't do it in vr because the way that the brain operates and from the data that we have when you do something in vr it's experiential and the, the brain tends to you, know, you get muscle memory for these activities and we you leverage what's called embodied cognition the body moves in ways that actually prime you know the parts of the brain that are you know that that, that get activated when you do stuff so think of vr more like an actual experience Hence. We should avoid doing things that we would not be happy with ourselves if we did them in the real world. So to, to make that concrete, skydiving is something that I'm, you know, I'm kind of scared to do in the real world. But you know, if I had done it and survived, I'd I'd still be happy with who I am as a person. You know, something uh that's less ethical, something that, you know, we all have our line out, something that we're not comfortable with doing, doing those types of activities in VR may not be good for you that conversation on
2: ethics and content development, has that reached the wider community when it comes
3: to building out what VR can do? So I spend a lot of time talking to the tech giants, uh, pick your big tech company who's building VR and I've spent time with their leadership. And, uh, my, my, my hunch when it comes to the Samsung's and the Facebook's and the Sony's, uh, Sony, I don't talk to as often, but I'm I'm hoping that's going to change. Uh, and, uh, course, the HTC. My hunch with these companies is they don't want to do bad things. I really yeah, you know, social media is getting a bad rap in the uh, rap in today's news, and you know, my I don't speak much with people that make social media, but I do spend a ton of time with these companies, their leadership in the VR space, and and they're listening to me. I, 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 you know, whether or not they choose to ignore market forces and and to you know adhere to the types of lessons I talk about, that remains to be seen. But I will tell you, the time that I've spent with the people of these companies, they. Are hearing me? Whether or not they act on it is, is another story. But, but but I my experience with them has been with uh, leadership that actually wants to do the right thing.
2: Well, let's dive into some of the science and the applications of VR. And and I think one of the early places you come to in the book uh, that I was easy to wrap my head around was the idea of VR being a tool for training, whether it's training the military or, in my case, more interestingly, training quarterbacks.
3: So VR is great for things that in the real world are impossible to do. Dangerous to do. That's why we have VR because of flight simulators. Flying a plane is dangerous. You should learn by doing super expensive to do. And in the football context, having, you know, uh, 21 other players. You're the rest of your offense and the defense on the field is super expensive to have those people there, just so you can practice recognizing defensive schemes. And there's a lot of advantages to why VR saves. is perfect for training Uh, with NFL quarterbacks. This is, you know, um, I don't talk about this that often, but 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 it but it's 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 neat when you take a step back, you know. With all the teams that we've worked with, so for, for full disclosure, I've co-founded a company called Striver. Striver has been in existence since um, January twenty fifteen. We have trained hundreds of thousands of use cases, meaning across all of our sports, because it's not just football. We work with soccer uh, and skiing and baseball and basketball and you know just about every sport you can think of. We are working with uh, some number of teams in that space. And I've got hundreds of thousands of data points where, you know, when somebody trains, so a quarterback, when he trains, he is looking around the field, trying to recognize the defense and maybe changing a play. We're now working with the U S ski team where, uh, the women and men, they are putting on the helmet and practicing Well, they're actually skiing for real as we speak. Um, but in the, in the year prior, they've been putting on the helmet and practicing, going down this Korean course where they can kind of move their bodies to, feel where they'd be making turns and get an overall sense for the field. And, um, across all these sports, we've gotten to do some really fun big data analysis where you can look at someone's behavior when they're training, how they move their head, you know, where they looked, how they position their body in a scene. And then you can correlate their behavior during training with their performance later on in the field or on the course. And you can actually build predictive models that show, how practice relates to success on the field. And there's all sorts of fun things you can do there. Now you can feed that data back to change how they practice while they're practicing in VR. You can use it to do what's called tryouts. For example, with NFL players, a lot of our, our general managers, they'll put their draft choice picks inside VR and see what they'll do. And it's, it's just changing the way you train and assess people. And I know the data is early, but you're you're seeing
2: promising numbers there when it comes to that relation to success, because that's what you'll be judged on at the end of the day—is whether this makes somebody better at
3: what they do. So uh, it's always important to be. I, I like your question, and thanks for acknowledging that it's early. I don't want to overclaim. So in football, if you take the quarterback, so many things have to happen for that quarterback to throw a touchdown pass, and you know of the dozens of things that happen. Only one of them is from the quarterback. There's all sorts of activities that happen on the offensive line and obviously with the receiver, with defense and and coaches' decisions. So it's really hard to claim credit for outcomes of games and even for outcomes of specific plays. So we try to be very careful on this. That being said, with the large sample that we've had across our sports, we do have some places where it's possible to look at this experimentally and we have been seeing gains in performance.
2: See, I know Case Keenum from the Vikings has been a big user of VR, and I was just hoping you would take credit for that hail mary in the playoffs this this year.
3: I um we I was obviously watching that game, and Case Keenum literally took two thousand six hundred virtual snaps this past season. It was uh, you know one of our best use cases ever. There's some players that I've used more, but he's was exceptional, and uh, you know I I, I, I I'm not going to lie to you. We've looked through to see if he practiced in VR that Hail Mary pass. And uh, we're we're still trying to get to the bottom of that. But it was what an amazing play. Beyond training, there's
2: therapy. I've had the chance to talk to Skip Rizzo at USC, who has been using VR for uh, veterans suffering from PTSD. There's stories in your book about pain management using VR. Can you talk about this scenario and why VR can potentially be used in these therapeutic environments?
3: Well, let's, let's start with the relief of pain. And this is, this is a frustrating part of life in that there's been so much academic work here and still you can't go to the hospital and get VR to reduce your pain. So, you know, anyone that's tried VR, you understand what's called presence, meaning You completely buy into the illusion. You feel like you're there. That pit feels so real. You won't step over that plank. You know, every, you just forget you're in a physical room. It turns out that we only have so much attention in our brains that we can dedicate towards life. And when you're so absorbed in the virtual world, you notice your own body less. And so presence in the virtual world actually equates to absence in the physical world. And, you know, one of the heroes of this space, his name is Hunter Hoffman. In the mid-1990s, he shows... Substantial gains in psychological pain when you're changing the bandage on a burn victim, when you put that burn victim in Snow World and they're transported into this very cold place, very distracting, and you know, you're, you're mentally transported far away that you feel pain less. And since that first landmark study, hundreds of studies, including large sample random control trials, you know, we know that VR reduces pain. Why is it that you can't get that in the hospital? And then, you know, the answer is that. You know, medicine moves fairly slowly with this, but it's one of the the reasons why I included, when I wrote the book, I had to decide, you know, of all the things I can talk about, because there's so many fun things to talk about in VR, what do I want to dedicate? And I dedicated a chapter to physical pain and a chapter to mental pain, because I feel like there's such an opportunity to integrate this into ways to help people. I really wanted to highlight that.
2: And do those therapeutic uh, interventions, do they linger? Do they last? Because when it comes to something like pain, which is also just not an incredibly well-understood area of science, is VR just a Band-Aid or is it potentially a solution?
3: Well, in the pain research uh, or the pain literature, people tend to talk about acute versus chronic pain. And where there's a decent amount of data or a good amount of data is with acute pain. This is things like changing your bandages. When there's an intense moment of pain, VR distracts you away from that. There's less data for if you've got, say, lower back pain uh, and it always kind of creeps around. Can you use VR when it creeps up and does it, does it distract you later on? Um, I, I think the answer to your question comes to physical therapy. And so, you know, when you do PT, it hurts. And so if you're trying to get long-term healing you've got to really work hard during your physical therapy. In VR, what you can do is it's so distracting. You don't feel the pain as much when you're doing your therapy. You can guide movements precisely by having them follow, you know, objects in VR by by showing them how their arms should move. So, you know, where you see the data, and there's a number of studies that have been published here, is the long-term healing of pain because you are more likely to do your PT and do it correctly. This brings us
2: to... I, I think what the the real heart of the book from a science standpoint is, which is about VR and empathy. This idea of experiencing empathy in a virtual world that is hard to replicate any other way, in the in the sense that you really can embody a time and a and a place, even a, a person that you wouldn't be able to do under normal circumstances. And you've been studying this for a number of years. So Take us into like what does empathy and VR look like? Because you, some of your studies are are very stark in their examples of of how this interacts with our brains.
3: I mean, the the first thing to point out here is that you know there's things get uh, arguments get filtered through you know, as we go from a scientist to a storyteller and through different media accounts. And one thing I want to make clear is that VR is not going to solve racism. It's not going to solve sexism. Uh, You know, VR is not going to make us into these amazing, empathetic people that we were never like before. VR is a tool that can help us do something called perspective taking. And the perspective taking literature is, you know, there's a lot of work in psychology that if you can actually take someone's perspective cognitively, you know, understand what's going on in their life emotionally. Feel what it's like to walk a mile in their shoes. That in general, this causes people to to, to form uh, greater bonds of empathy, and then behave based on that empathy uh, to do sympathetic behaviors. Now, the problem, and this is not a problem, a, an indictment on anyone, is that in general, humans we don't want to perspective take. Humans, we don't want to take the perspective of others all the time. It'd be really hard to function in this world if you're constantly imagining trauma and imagining what if it was like if it were you. I mean, it's it's you know the the example uh, Jamil Zaki, who's the Stanford psychologist that I do a lot of work with, he's a world's expert on empathy. One of the examples he gives in in his work is when there is a, a a telethon comes onto television, and the telethon is to help people that have some you know type of disorder. You know, do you want to watch that? And, you know, for most of us, that answer is no. I I mean, I want to help that cause and I want to help people. But am I going to go out of my way to spend half an hour taking the perspective of of others where it's going to be painful to do so? It's really hard to do that. So what virtual reality does from a mechanism standpoint is, first of all, it makes perspective taking cognitively more easy uh it's really hard to to imagine other people other places we don't always want to do it with vr you just kind of put it on and the work gets done for you because you automatically you become someone else you become a woman of color experiencing harassment or you become uh, a refugee and and felt what it's like not to have a home so it just takes a lot of the imagination work out of there the second thing it does is it makes things accurate so when you think about the literature on visualization imagine what it's like to be healed or imagine what it's like to, to be someone else, you fall back on your own notions. And a lot of our notions are based on stereotypes. So a lot of the work that we're doing currently in the lab is uh, we're, we're using a journey called becoming homeless. And it's about learning that Many people who are homeless—they're—they're—they've they, become homeless because of situations that have happened in their lives, as opposed to flaws in their own character. So a lot of us we say, "Well, they must have a mental illness. They must—not uh, that that's a character flaw. That's 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 an illness. They must have, uh, you know, an addiction to drugs." And a lot of times, it's about things that have happened to them in their lives that are out of their control. And so uh, the idea is what VR does well to kind of put a stamp on the second point is it gives you the accurate information such that you can take one's perspective without relying on stereotypes. And for those two reasons, there's great reasons to think about uh, it will be helpful. Now, what I want you to think about is that VR is only good as an experience. And if there's some problem, whether it's you know Syrian refugees or uh, you know the, the Me Too movement or anything about racism, if you don't think having an actual experience something where you you know experienced harassment firsthand or you actually went to the camps and and you you know pretended to you know be a refugee and and walked with them if you don't think that experience is going to change your mind then vr is certainly not going to help vr at its best generates an experience and it's all about the experience itself so one of the the the, the talking points that that's really become more salient and that 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 has evolved due to the conversations that I'm having like the one we're having here is that vr doesn't cause empathy experiences do and so you would never ask or I would never suggest that the medium of video or the medium of an audio recording it magically creates empathy it's about what you do with it and vr is no different
2: most of these experiences are designed to have you feel this empathetic feeling that is hard to replicate some other way. I'm wondering if this experience of going through a process like this, where you endure a stressful experience, might make you somewhat think, well, I've been through that. That's hard. And you have less sympathy when you come across a person that's actually lived that in real life. I know there's a few psychological researchers that have this concern with VR, that the embodiment is replacing empathetic concern, that sort of relationship-driven empathy.
3: So one of, one of the researchers doing a ton of work in, in the VR bias space is a guy named Mel Slater. He's a professor uh, in Barcelona. And Mel and his colleagues—they—they probably now in the last year or so published, you know, a good ten or twenty studies in this area. Um, they're not as—we do talk about three or four of them in the book—but they've been really active since the books come out. And you know, Mel and I talk, uh, you know, fairly often about the work. And um, when Mel does his work to talk about reducing bias, he puts you in someone else's body, but he doesn't then induce some traumatic event. So in my research, we talk about changing behavior and, and teaching about uh, experiences so that you understand, you know, issues, uh, of, of, of prejudice and discrimination. But what Mel claims, and, and we're testing this now in the lab is we're doing a double whammy. You experience becoming what, what he calls body transfer. You become someone else. Then while you're wearing the body of someone else, you experience a really negative event. And there's this kind of, you know, double edged sword where you form an association where you now associate a new body, maybe I become a different race or a different gender with something bad. And so when Mel, when he finds his reductions in bias, he puts you in a different body, but then doesn't induce trauma. He just has you walk around wearing a body. And his argument is that, you know, by wearing the body, people tend to like themselves, just by having this experience in another body, it reduces your bias because you, you've psychologically become closer to that person. Do these
2: uh, effects of these experiences, do, do they linger? I've definitely had experiences in VR that I've talked about um, for weeks to come because it is it is an a- exceptional experience that I haven't had before. But do they actually lead to behavioral change when you study them over a population?
3: So, Fernanda Herrera, who does the a lot of the work on empathy in my lab, she's a third-year PhD student, she presented a few months back uh, preliminary results from uh, an experiment where she looked eight weeks out. And compared virtual reality to perspective taking eight weeks after they experienced becoming homeless and showed that even eight weeks out that VR was outperforming role playing traditional perspective taking uh, when you looked at how people were going to change their behavior towards the homeless.
2: I'm curious about evolving presence. Like currently the generation of, of hardware that's out there is really visual in nature. your whole field of view is dominated by this landscape but i've had recent experiences with hardware innovations that bring in tactile senses is virtual reality evolving to the place where we're going to see more sensory inputs to expand what this what this looks and feels like
3: there is always been energy in the haptic space which is virtual touch it's 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 really Psychologically powerful to feel someone else's touch. For example, when you're doing networked avatars, or when you touch an object to get force feedback, so that your finger can't go through it. Um, the problem, the challenge with haptics is that it's it's pretty difficult to generate the amount of force. So if you take one hand and grab the other hand and squeeze it as hard as you can without hurting yourself, the amount of force it takes from all those different directions and the nuance of the musculature—it's really hard to achieve um, that with any kind of a Device that's smaller than a Volkswagen, um, so it's uh, we're we're a long way off from having haptics that feel completely real. However, the research shows that even a little bit of haptics, a little bit of virtual touch, goes a long way psychologically. So, especially when you feel it's coming from another person, just feeling a tap in a vest uh, is 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 pretty intense and powerful.
2: How should we be approaching this this boom in in VR, uh, this this boom that's happening right now in consumer VR with lots of monetary investment flowing into it. It's not so dissimilar from what happened in the 80s and 90s. This has been uh, a white whale uh, for technology for a long time. Are we at a point where this is something that's really going to become ingrained in our everyday experience,
3: or is this still just a
2: a special experience, something that we want to use as a tool more so than anything else?
3: So, when predicting uh, VR's future, I'm pretty much wrong every year. (laughs) Um, But so uh, you and and pretty much everyone else, I think. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think at some point the content is going to be good enough that you're going to want to put that thing on your head, you know, for 15 minutes, three or four times a week. You know, right now, I don't. Other than a really intense subset of people that are early movers. I don't know anyone that does that. And I, you know, I have a VR lab and I, you know, use it maybe two or three times a week. I, I, I just, it's going to take some time before the content justifies the, uh, you know, using it for more than that. But to be honest, I, I love a world in which you're using it a couple of times a week for special experiences, you know, where, where, where I tend to think about more long-term uses, not around the entertainment space, but uh, around the, the, work meeting space so if we can reduce the commute and not have to travel for every single meeting and and to drive back and forth and to fly across the world for business meetings that's where you know I feel you know meetings can be can occur in VR, but still I you know I, I also have a philosophy about meetings. Most meetings don't need to be more than half an hour or an hour. We can do those in VR. So I, I I the answer is the hardware is good enough. I mean I was just at Oculus and I I signed an NDA so I can't tell you too many details. I mean I don't work for them or anything. I they just I just went to visit to give a book talk. I got to try the uh, the Santa Cruz, which is their new HMD yeah, with the and, inside
2: out tracking. It's an amazing piece of hardware.
3: It you you got to try it. Yeah it's awesome. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I walked out of there saying this is about as good as I, I ever hoped the VR would get. I mean, I wasn't anticipating this really intense trajectory, but what's stopping larger scale use, I don't think is a hardware because it was spectacular what I tried. It's it's just, there's got to be a reason to do it. I mean, to maintain the hardware, to deal with the driver updates, to to, you know, to calibrate the cameras over and over again, to make sure everything's charged in the right way. And, you know, all that stuff will get easier, but it all starts with some type of experience that's worth it.
2: The industry is going to go where the industry is going to go, whether it's driven by games or by economics, or you know whether if it, it crashes and burns. But I'm curious where you see the the science going. I mean, largely we've talked about VR experiences that are singular in nature, one person in VR. But it seems like we're heading to a place where we're talking about interacting with other humans in VR as well.
3: So I, I just had the treat last week. Uh, Every once in a while, I get to to not not do work and go to a work event where I'm not really working. And I went up to High Fidelity, which is Philip Rosedale's new company, and he had a he threw a dance party where in the physical space he had about thirty stations set up. Some of them HTC Vive, you know, full arm and leg tracking. Some of them Oculus Rift CV1, where it was just head and hands. Uh, but he was able in the High Fidelity platform to network thirty of us where spatialized audio worked. And there was even a haptic vest where I had an avatar walk up to me, move his hand in virtual space. And I could feel in like 30 points of contact on my chest, feel the haptics as the hand moved over my chest. It was, it was just mind boggling, mind bogglingly cool. So um, obviously, the networked aspect of putting people together is, is, is really when things are going to start to change. And are we going
2: to see a, a boom in in scientific groups studying this? Uh, even though you highlight so much work in this field in your in your book, it's still a, a relatively small number of labs studying this.
3: It's you know one of the things that you know I, I simultaneously. I'm sad about, but really I'm mostly ecstatic about is that it's not just me and seven other scholars across the planet who are studying the psychology of VR. There's now hundreds of people uh, that are starting to do it. And I you know it's slightly sad because it was fun being a, an early mover, but mostly it's awesome now seeing that we can do things like replicating studies, You know, doing the amount of research that needs to be done. And, and it's really neat to watch a lot of new scholars picking up the medium.
2: Well, I share your optimism about VR and your desire for a, a real just sort of stunning set of content pieces to come out that will lure us back into VR as an experience that will hopefully make the world a, a better place. Uh, Jeremy Balenson, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds.
3: This is fantastic. Thanks so much.
1: So one of the things that got me really excited, and this is something that I've been wanting to bring to the Conservatory of Music, or you know, I'm, I'm on faculty, I help musicians develop more effective practice strategies, is this idea of practicing in VR. I mean, imagine you're a violinist, you're a violin student, and you're about to do the auditions for the major symphonies, and you haven't had a chance to play your excerpts with an orchestra. Wouldn't it be great to be able to do that 10 times a day without, you know, much cost to you? In virtual reality, I mean, it just seems to me like from everything we know about cognitive science and how the brain learns, the more similar the circumstances of training are to the actual time in which you want to transfer those skills, the more transfer you get.
2: I'm totally sold on that. I mean, Jeremy doesn't have quantitative results that say like training in this way leads to a better result because it's so hard to be causal in that way you know when we're well talk- it's
1: not hard it's just expensive and yeah. nobody wants to do the studies and especially if you can just get the nfl to buy your tool okay. why bother right <laughs>
2: well in some ways um isn't it what the athlete says just as important as some of the quantum no it's not no <laughs> <laughs> i take that back but what the athlete not on says this show, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's true what the athlete does say does make a difference what the violence violinist feels about the experience because that's who the consumer of this product is going to be in the real world.
1: Well, and also that's the person who's performing. So if you have a quarterback who's walking into a game that's much more confident that you know he's going to be able to do exactly what he needs to do and you take away performance anxiety, that's a huge benefit.
2: And I think employers especially. So if you're the NFL team, any advantage that you can get, whether it's extracting extra practice out of your quarterback by giving them extra time like this, to analyze defenses. You're going to see that as a net positive, whether it's placebo or whether it has some small effect. uh, It's hard to say right now. But my guess is, especially when you see interviews with Case Keenum, who we referred to in the podcast, who went from being a real average NFL quarterback to being in the top 10 of quarterbacks this year, to the point where he won a NFL playoff game with a Hail Mary. What he has said about that experience, about how well it prepared him for Sundays, how he actually was in real life, recognized plays and defensive schemes by his time in VR, I think that's a pretty powerful statement about its potential here. And you can't get past what you mentioned off the top, which is the primary one, that it's cheap.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think football is a great example because you have one game a week, right? Where so you just you just don't have that many opportunities to practice your skills you know, it's different in baseball, where you have 162 games in a season, and essentially you're playing, you know, a game every single day, and maybe like the virtual reality is, is not quite as useful, at least not during the season, possibly during the off season. Um, so I think that in particular, this is going to be really useful for uh, cases in which a performer has to get up and do something that is very hard to simulate, and they don't get a lot of opportunities to do it, you know, under those same conditions.
2: W- one of the places I was left a little unsatisfied by what Jeremy said was in reference to these experiences having the counter effect of what they're sort of intended to be. So I've done a number of VR experiences that has really put you in in difficult places, like in the middle of the Palestinian conflict in the body of a homeless person where you experience these really kind of intense emotional situations. Did you have
1: a full body haptic suit?
2: No, I did not have a full body haptic suit, okay. unfortunately. But what it it definitely leaves you with something. You it lingers with you this idea of um this empathy for the for the people that are going through this but there is this concern out there that that is just going to harden people uh, because there is a way while it feels real it's still not quite real there's still something missing from that sure, and i'm I mean, wondering always... what what you think as a neuroscientist what do you think about that
1: yeah i mean you can you can always walk away right so that's you know that that takes out a huge part of when you're trying to get into someone else's shoes is the sense that they're trapped. Um, and you're not in VR. But I think that the, you know, the the other side of it, too, is that, you know, our brains are very adaptable. Uh, So at the moment, it feels as if we can go from, you know, the real world to the VR world. And the only thing that our brain knows to do is to adapt the VR world to be like the real real world in terms of our experiences. It's entirely possible that if we spend a lot of time in VR, you know, our brains are going to have a VR uh, context that's going to be quite different. And I I don't know that we know what the consequences of that are going to be for for the rest of our life.
2: Last thought. You remember interviewing Paul Bloom, um, I think it was a, oh, yes. a year ago. Mm-hmm. And he made a case that while there's so many more calls for we need more empathy in this world, especially now, he made a call for something different. Hearing Jeremy talk about how there's this tool out there that can that can be a tool for more empathy. How do you feel about it comparing that to that interview with Paul where he was saying what's really needed was a form of compassion.
1: Yeah. So I don't want to put words into Paul's mouth, but I if I were Paul, <laughs> I think I'd probably say, look, this is even worse. Uh, because it's gonna make the problem problem even more more potentially harmful. And, and and you know, Paul's argument to be, you know, distilled down into just a couple sentences is that, you know, sometimes feeling empathy leads us to making decisions that are not quite moral. So for example, you know, I see a picture of a starving child in Africa that makes me feel sorry for the child. I send the, the company that sent me the pictures 50 cents a day. And now I feel like I've done my duty. But I still live my life in such a way that I perpetuate the inequality that has led to you know all of those starving children and knowing that there are you know 3 million of them uh, doesn't you know it's a statistic it's, a statistic, it's not you know, something that moves me. In VR, I think you have the danger of, of that even becoming even more real. Because if you can put yourself in the shoes of someone else, you think you understand their entire experience, you know, and I don't think you do. I don't think you 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 know, if you're if you're coming from, you know, a place of high privilege, for example, and then you put yourself in the shoes of someone who is low privilege, and all of a sudden, you know, you feel bad for those 15 minutes, are you going to come out and say, hey, you know, I did my part. And so like, I don't have to worry about the rest or, you know, so, so I don't know, I think I think that there is a good you know argument to be made that you know we 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 should we can't just uh empathize and and expect that that will lead to moral behavior um we also have to have compassion
2: i will say for all of this discussion about the potential downsides of vr i still love vr it has offered experiences that i never thought were possible and the hardware and the tech as it is right now while a lot of the content isn't quite there yet man, it's so close. It is so close to having experiences where I tried out something where I actually felt like I was flying.
1: I I agree with you. In fact, like, you know, it's like, I don't even know what to teach my four year old son, because I feel like by the time he's 14, VR is going to be so advanced that there's like, I mean, I I don't know how to equip him for that. Because all he needs to do is like pop into some kind of virtual reality and learn way more than I can ever teach him by showing him books or telling him a bunch of facts. So. That's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds, and we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer-Awald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. Now that we've left our partnership with Mother Jones, it's especially important uh, that we continue to have your support, and we are so grateful that you are sticking with us. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. And if you listened over the weekend, you might know that we have brought back a segment that was popular that we had been doing for a while, uh, which is a version of our Science in the News. Um, we're calling it Up to Date. And it'll come out about once a week where Kishore and I will talk about the latest Science in the News and our take on it. So if you have stories that you think are particularly uh, fun to cover or you want us to cover, uh, do send us emails about them at contact at inquiring show
2: and just a reminder for our patreon subscribers if you subscribe at the five dollar level you get an ad free version of the podcast every week inquiring minds is produced by adam isaac our music is provided by award-winning producer rianjian
1: and we're your hosts i'm andre viscontis and you can find me on twitter at indre vis
2: and i'm kishore hari at science Quiche. see you next week This episode is brought to you by Udemy. Want to expand your potential? With over 65,000 courses starting just at $1,199, Udemy can help develop your skills and discover new passions. Students around the world have used Udemy to get ahead and even switch careers. Are you ready to join the largest marketplace for online earning? Visit Udemy slash inquiring or download the Udemy app to learn anytime, anywhere. That's U D E. Dot my slash this episode was brought to you by Smart News. Say goodbye to fake news, nasty trolls, and the filter bubble of your social networks. Get your news in one minute from over 300 trusted media sources with Smart News. Available for free on the App Store or Google Play Store.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing.